think it would be very beneficial for everybody to take a look at the ocean, smell it, listen to it. If you're brave enough, stick your toes in it. It'll surprise you. There's some people who have a lot of fears about it, but I believe in, in learning about dangerous things that you deem fearful. You can go far. With knowledge, there comes power. We're deep in the winter of the great pandemic. We're losing so much, but we're also learning and growing in ways that seem both long overdue and right on time. The same week, and I'm recording this introduction, Brad Turner and I did what a zillion other people did. We logged onto a Zoom call. It was a conversation that came about because Brad was and is a generous teacher and collaborator. And he's also walking around with one of the biggest hearts I've encountered in the world of ocean-loving humans. This particular Zoom was the latest step in a journey we began earlier this year, just about when we recorded this interview. On my Zoom screen this week were members of the Surfrider Foundation, an environmental organization of surfers, and they were from all over the country, all logged on for a discussion with historian Scott Latterman, author of the book, Empire and Waves, A Political History of Surfing. For those of you who don't know much about Surfrider, here's the organization's mission statement. The Surfrider Foundation is dedicated to the protection and enjoyment of the world's oceans, waves, and beaches for all people through a powerful activist network. This conversation with Dr. Latterman was the second in an ongoing series that Brad and I are organizing with our local chapter of Surfrider, and we're putting these up on a YouTube channel. We hope a lot of people will learn from them. We're also hoping to talk with more scholars and artists, filmmakers, poets, and any other humans whose work can help all of us who love the ocean understand access in ways that are more cognizant of our country's history and the ways the politics of whiteness have impacted access to the places we ocean lovers hold dear. And during one moment in a rich and informative talk, Dr. Latterman discussed the way localism, which is the tendency of surfers to want to keep their own lineups for and to themselves. He talked about the way localism reinforces white supremacy. Somebody asked him, well, what should we put in the place of localism? He said, I don't want to sound all airy-fairy, but we could just be nice to one another. Later he said, and I'm paraphrasing here, we need to enter these surfing spaces with reverence for where we are in this moment, mindful and informed about our past, so that we can be effective stewards of the experiences that are open both to us in this moment and to future generations. With knowledge comes power. Brad Turner has a tremendous amount of both to offer. Welcome to Waves to Wisdom. My name is Bradley Turner. I am 38 years old and I have been surfing for going on 21 years now. Wonderful. We are on your front porch near Carolina Beach. Correct. Where we have surfed now a few beautiful mornings oh, together. very much so. So nice. We had, we had some good days. Yes. One of them I had to overcome terror <laughs> more than once. Okay, it comes. <laughs> okay, good. So there are so many exciting things about your life and your relationship to the ocean that I hope we can get into. But would you start by telling us a little bit about this nonprofit organization that you are instrumental in? And my understanding is there are, it basically has two names, two different legs of the body. Correct. Uh, if you could tell us a little bit about that. Sure. I run 
the East Coast variation of Inkwell Surf, which is based out of Santa Monica, California. Additionally, I run Black Girl Surf, and we deal with uh, coaching and mentorship for the younger kids, and we also provide a release for them in the ocean and just a place where they can discuss how they feel and have an opportunity to see things that they normally wouldn't see. And are these primarily children of color? They are. Okay. They are. And we're, you know, we're in North Carolina. Correct. And I started to surf. Now it's 14 years ago. And, you know, I played sports growing up in North Carolina. And one of the first things I noticed when I entered what I thought of as a sporting space, I have come to understand it as something much more akin to a, a religious order almost Definitely. with a discipline and a worldview. But at that point, I was thinking of it as a sport. And I noticed right away that unlike almost any other sports environment that I had been in, there were almost no people of color in the lineup. I can agree. Yeah, and, and that, it was startling to me and set me on this path of figuring out why, why, why right. did that happen? And uh, I hope we can talk more about the ways that you have been working to address that disparity and some of the history that got us to this conundrum. But first, Please, would you tell everybody about how you started out your adventure as a surfer? I started my adventure surfing uh, back in the year of 2001 to deal with what I was experiencing at the time in the military at Camp Lejeune, which is in Jacksonville, North Carolina. The first place I surfed was on base at Onslow Beach. That that is my home break. At the time, I, I was bored in the barracks. Uh, it was a hot summer, and a few of my friends, we decided to go out to Onslow Beach, and I had taken a boogie board and ridden my first wave. I'd never seen the ocean, mind you. Um, wow. How old I, were you at this point? I want to say I was... 17 at the okay. time and that one that one moment it it replays as if I'd I'd pressed rewind over and over again I'm sure like every other surfer they remember that that first wave yeah, it it was magical I took off on a on a boogie board and uh, I've never stopped since <laughs> So, were you a strong swimmer at that point? I've always been a strong swimmer. Played in pools as a kid. I eventually, in, in middle school to high school, uh, was a maintenance man apprentice and began to work on pools uh, with the chemicals and such and cleaning it and also enjoying the, the luxury of swimming in it. So, yes, I've always been drawn to the water in one way, shape, or form. It's always been a a space where I felt comfortable. Okay, so so you're in Camp Lejeune, you take off on that wave, and did you know right then that you were gonna come back? I was hooked. I think Kelly Slater termed it once. It's like joining the mafia. Once you're in, you're never getting out. And <laughs> yeah, I was, I, was, I was hooked for life at that point. And did you have friends who you were in the military with who were stand-up surfing at that point, who you started to go with? I unknowingly uh, 
found out that America's best and brightest, uh, the tip of the spear, as we say in the military, I was, I was surfing around them. I slowly learned their names and their stories, and most of them were special operators, and I learned that that's how they decompressed. They did their job for America, and they came home and, and surfed. Many of them are still my friends, and we all surf to help deal with our different paths and journeys in life. Interesting. So, you know, I've never been in the military, and I do have some, my uncle was career in Navy, enlisted, and then officer. And it has always struck me that for many people who serve, especially for more than just a couple years, that there's, you know, that there are repeated traumas inherent in the job description. Right. And I mean, we have all sorts of developing and ongoing research showing that surfing is a uniquely, or at least exceptionally effective way of dealing with trauma. So it sounds like you just sort of happened into this community who had figured this out for themselves. Correct, and uh, it just so happened that I joined to become a Navy corpsman, which is the individuals who are attached to the Marines. In the Army, you would call us the medic. We're there for medical attention in the field, a religious purpose, and so on and so forth. And just so happens that, you know, we were healing together in the water. Doc and, and Marines, we were we were doing it together on the same on the same journey. Not knowing the terminology at the time, but we we're definitely on the same vibration. Mm -hmm. Yes. You weren't talking about it, you were just doing it. Correct. And how long was that period of your life when you were surfing at Onslow Beach and serving as a Navy, Navy corpsman? I served off and on uh, entirely throughout the military for five and a half years. And did you grow up in North Carolina? I did not. I was born in Canton, Ohio. Okay. Uh, Football Hall of Fame. Just about when I was two or three, uh, my mother and I, we moved down to Georgia to the military from uh, North Cross, Georgia. Okay, so you were in the military for five and a half years. You learned how to surf mm -hmm. with, turned out, people who formed the tip of the spear. Correct. Fascinating. And then you transitioned out of the military. I did. The transition, it was uh, a little rocky, to say the least. I was dealing with a lot at the time. Divorce, getting out of the military, moving away from that dynamic and learning how to be a civilian again, um, all those things culminating together was different. I can say that throughout that, surfing definitely kept me afloat, as it were. And uh, I can go even further and say that it, it went as far as saving my life. Really? Um, yes. Yeah. Yes. It's been instrumental at, at many points uh, that I've been very much at the bottom of the the barrel. <laughs> it it has definitely been my my place of salvation, and um, yeah, I I don't know where I would be without surfing. If we were to to be perfectly honest and upfront about it, I'd, right now, if I were to think about it, I. I can't, I can't pinpoint where I would be without surfing in my life. So I'm pretty thankful, 
very grateful. Has me here talking to you? Oh my goodness, yes. <laughs> and I am so grateful for being able to be here talking to you and I never would have found you with, without surfing myself. So right. as far as I can tell, the primary audience for these interviews is not surfers. Okay. And one of the reasons that I love doing this podcast is that my experience, I'm 54 years old at this point and, and I have spent my adult life sort of on the very edges of of grown-up employment, right? And right. and as many surfers, not all, but many surfers do. Yeah. And and even before I was surfing, I always knew that I needed to have the the what we think of as the real world aspects of my life, which which basically means the economic aspects of right. my life that those parts of existence needed to not undermine my relationship with the more than human world and my ability to be active right. in it and learning from it. So one of the, you know, one of the great parts about getting older is that is you start to understand what you have to offer in new ways. And, and I've come to believe at this point with the zeal of the evangelical that it's not just we as individuals who need to learn how to work less and play more and be in our bodies and have relationships with the more than human world. It's not just we as individuals who need that, although we desperately do. Right. It's actually the entire planet that needs us to do that. Ah, oh, yes. It needs us to temper our priorities with these relationships Definitely. in this web of life. So I'm very interested in how you would describe the value. I mean, you've been you've been really clear about saying if it weren't for surfing, I don't know where I would be. Right. It could have been really bad. Right. It saved my life. <clears throat> how did it do that? <laughs> I don't know how to speak outside of surfing. Go ahead. When I speak, please so do. I apologize for those who do not surf. Um, uh, it's. It's been basically uh, an ebb and flow, a, a, a tidal adventure drawn by the moon, if, if we're to go that far. <laughs> Let's go all the way. Yes, please. <laughs> um, yes, it's, um, it's been very beneficial. Uh, definitely when I got out, um, there was a veil that was lifted from my eyes as a African-American um, who served our country, I, I started to see and feel uh, in the real world that what I fought for um, as a black person, I didn't feel, I don't know how to describe it, the same when I got out but my surfboard and, and the ocean, um, it kept me balanced um, throughout the waves of difficulty that I experienced. Even with people with different viewpoints I've surfed with, we've been best friends and had deep discussions in and out of the water, which I think a, a lot of the world needs right now. Um, I've sat on the beach of Onslow Beach, of Carolina Beach, of Wrightsville Beach, of many beaches and talked to people who are real, who are, you know, they, they have real stories uh, to their life and, and 
purpose and the ocean, despite whether they surf or not, allows them that avenue to release what they may be holding inside. I mean, I've been lucky enough to be a surfer and, and all of that happened in the water and I get to well, ride the, you know, everlasting vibration, you know, starting at one point with wind and forming a wave. Yeah, I'm grateful and I hope that everybody can discover the, the blue mind, if you will, and be able to apply it to their life and heal. Maybe I can help you. Mm. I would love to. <laughs> yes, I think you can help a great many people. And uh, we'll be sure and put up a, a link to Jane Nichols' book, Blue Mind, which you and I have both read and loved. Yes, I love that. It, essentially, the idea is that just being near the water, you don't have to be in it with a surfboard, but just Correct. looking at the lake, looking at the creek, even looking at a photograph of the water exactly. um, can lower your blood pressure and chill you out. Yes. Okay, so you were in the military and you had one idea of the America that you were serving. Correct. You left the military, and what I heard you say was that America turned out to not exist outside of the institution of the through, military. Through my lens, that's correct. Okay. As an African-American who served in the military, yes. That's, okay. That's exactly what I would say my experience, my personal experience uh, was like, yes. And did you run into, uh, was it a difference in opportunity for you or was it a difference in attitude of your fellow Americans or what was the difference? I would check all of those boxes um, in one hand in the military. Um, we were almost uh, encouraged to work with each other to form one team and you know, accomplish one goal and individuals from all around the world and all throughout the country working in a small knit community, we have to get along and work through our individual differences. And we worked as a team of blue, if you will, in the Navy, or uh, we're, we all are green as we would say in the Marines, outside of the base, um, it didn't feel the same, it felt divided. That American dream that we all talk about and, and reach towards, uh, it felt a, a, a little more out of reach once I stepped outside of that gate. Um, I, I used to hear the stories that my grandfathers and uncles who also served in the military talked about uh, with regards to racism and you know their experience and you know for some reason as an African-American who served I, I, I was almost too naive to think that we have moved past that as well uh, because of the work experience in the military and it being so diverse and me calling each individual that I worked with family. You are my brother, you are my sister. You know, despite where you were raised, how you were raised, I learn about your story, you learn about my story, let's work together and, and move together. That's how I thought America worked outside of the military as well. Um, I, was, I was quickly smacked in the face with reality as far as that goes. Um, I moved to a town called Wilmington, North Carolina, and uh, 
the history was a little overwhelming, but you know, through learning and my own personal experience, it opened my eyes and, and through discovery and conversations with locals, it allowed me to learn where I resided. And I don't know, I just felt different, almost ostracized from, from that dream that I was, you know, I signed up for. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I mean, it, you know, I don't, I'm, I'm a, a white person in a country that has a long, stubborn history of white supremacy. So I can't really understand what you went through. But I do know that if something like that had happened to me, it would hurt my feelings to the on an existential level like right. it would i would feel betrayed and then to to still have those attitudes enduring and that history be you know at best swept under the carpet and at worst celebrated correct is um you know it it, it must be horrifying for you it, it's horrifying for me well um what i would describe it as my my experience getting out was more of an awakening that everyone is kind of going through right now as we speak, an eye-opening experience. It was a trial by fire personally with me learning my worth as a black man in America. Despite service, like I was black at the end of the of the day, um, I was still a black man and, and my service, it was almost rendered, you know, moot, which hurts. Uh, it sent me through a heavy depression. Um, I went through a lot of drinking and a lot of different paths that I had to reach out to the ocean to rebalance myself each time with those personal struggles. Um, at one point throughout all of that, I eventually met Rhonda Harper, who runs Inkwell Surf initially out of Santa Monica, where she mentored inner city kids and allowed them touch tanks to learn about the ocean and how to maintain their environment to also keep the ocean clean and also to surf and allow them to know that it's a space for them to be as well. Inkwell initially was a space where only African-Americans could go um, in California. Uh, Rhonda was instrumental in having the area recognized with a plaque for Mr. Nick Gobbledon, who was of African-American and Latino descent, and he was a great surfer. He surfed with the best of them, and he, uh, he lives on to this day throughout, throughout all of us with his story, and I, I carry that on and, and pass it on to the next generation that I work with here on the East Coast. Rhonda has been instrumental in teaching me the ways of what she does, and I've implemented with her direction you know, a program on the East Coast to do the same thing. And it's been magical. It's been a journey. Um, I'm a disabled veteran and it, I 
take the rest of my income and apply it to the program and slowly we're gaining traction unfortunately with the demise of George Floyd um, we all had to take a moment and reflect on what's going on in the world and from kids to the elderly um, we've all had to I don't know pay attention to what's always been there in front of our face the elephant in the room if you will the racist elephant in the room yes. if you will and Rhonda recently organized the paddle out that you help me organize locally. This is how we found each other. Correct. I'm so grateful for that. Solidarity Correct. and surf. Correct. That was a magical moment for me. Meeting individuals like yourself that made me believe in, in humanity again. That showed me that people do care about compassion and, you know, that we stand together against this wave of injustice and you're just gonna get on the wave or, or wipe out. Here we are, we're all surfing together and riding together in solidarity. I still haven't uh, really reflected on that day. Um, it, was, it was that big. Um, I, I, I was too jittery to write a speech. <laughs> it kinda just came out of me and I'm told it was a great speech. It I haven't was incredible. I haven't heard it, but you know, it was very um, moving to say the least. I don't think I can really place words on the feeling that I experienced, where everyone came together in the traditional surfing way, where we paddle out and pay respects to those who have passed, and for everybody collectively to come and paddle out and say that Black Lives Matter, um, it, it brought me to tears. Uh, it, it took the breath out of me. There was a young man that I've known my whole military career that showed up that day and he took the air out of me. <laughs> because he's seen, he's seen my journey uh, up until this point. I, I still surf with him on the regular at my local spot at the pipe on Carolina Beach and for him to show up that day as a married older man uh, when I met him as a Grom on Onslow Beach and, and show up at that paddle out, um, it was very moving for me. It's, it says something about your life, for sure, that, you know, that moment of, especially now, since you are you know, you've really stepped up and stepped into this role as elder, as mentor to, to young people. To see the result of a relationship, to see somebody grow into a, a compassionate person who's willing to take a stand, it's gotta be hopeful. It's been, it's been a struggle in my head. <laughs> uh, we all struggle with personal choices in our lives and I, I chose to to help people heal despite my own struggles. And it's just the way I've always been. I'm a very compassionate person. Uh, when it's time to stand up, stand up and, and fight for what's right, uh, you'll usually find me there. Whether it's through surfing or art or any other medium that 
you know, I'm capable of doing, you'll usually find me there. You tell us a little bit about your life as an artist. It's always kind of been there as a release for me before surfing, uh, where I was able to escape to and, and kind of make my own world. I graduated from Cape Fear Community College with my associate in fine arts and right thereafter they hired me as a tutor to tutor the whole program, printmaking, art history, uh, photography. The um, videography program, what have you. Uh, I was there for the next generation in line and I met some amazing people in the art industry in Wilmington, North Carolina. And um, Unfortunately, uh, with my health and decline, I haven't been able to to work with my art as much, but I've been busy with Inkwell and other surf avenues, so. Um, You're a dad. I am. <laughs> that definitely keeps me yes. busy. Yes. Um, I'm a father of a beautiful nine-year-old going on 20, uh, little girl, <laughs> Bethany Alden uh, Turner. Her first name is derived from Bethany Hamilton, the surfer more so for her struggle and still being a professional surfer uh, despite those struggles and she too has overcome true adversity I'd, I'd tip my hat every time <laughs> yes. I watch a video of her surfing um, her surfing with one arm puts my surfing with two arms to shame any day. Well, and that is true. And you are also an amazing <laughs> surfer. She is just somehow on another plane. Um, oh, so beautiful. So you and I have been, so we just met a little while ago. And, and we met through this paddle out. And, and I want to tell the story briefly because it was such an important moment for me. So I am in, as everybody else is, this post-George Floyd, Breonna Taylor, Ahmaud Arbery moment. Uh, looking for a way to do something. I know not what. I just know that it can't be about me. Right. And so I reached out to Rhonda after I saw that there was a Solidarity and Surf event in California oh, yeah. and said, okay, I would love to have one of these here. And she said, well, is Wilmington anywhere near Carolina Beach? <laughs> I said, why, yes, it is. <laughs> uh, and she said, okay, well, let me put you in touch with Brad Turner. Right. And that's how we found each other. And I have been so grateful, not just for that moment, because it was really a turning point for me. I would say in my entire really life as a surfer since those first questions came to me like where are all black surfers right. why are they, where are they because literally maybe one out of a hundred maybe one out of 200 oh, yeah. surfers out there um, are not white mm -hmm. never mind black okay so so we meet through solidarity and surf which is incredible and such a beautiful profound moving moment mostly white people but one thing that I saw happen during that event was we're in our circle on the beach. The way these events work is you circle up on the beach, you say some words, you paddle out, you circle up in the water, you splash, you throw flowers, mm -hmm. more words, then you come back. What I noticed happening as we were circling up, listening to your incredibly moving speech, were these two African-American families who came up and joined us and were so moved by what you were saying. And I think by the whole scene there. 
And it really, it made me proud in a way to be a surfer that I have really not been. It made me proud of our community as surfers. And I thought, you know, those kids, those kids just have a, suddenly got a different view of surfing than they ever could have gotten without you and that speech and that moment. And it was so intensely beautiful and transformative for me. You know, the, the family that you're speaking about, I got to see that moment uh, in photos and it's pretty hard to, to look at. Um, I'm currently tearing up. I'm sorry about that. I'm, no need to apologize. Uh, that, was, that was a powerful moment. I can, I can barely look at, at those photos because it was just a beautiful day and that, that very moment got captured and uh, I don't know if I can translate how it made me feel that day. Uh, other than powerful um, and moving, uh, just a wave of emotion. But thank you. <laughs> yeah, it was amazing, and 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 I don't, in in no way do I mean to denigrate at all or minimize your service as a Navy corpsman. But it it made me realize that I mean you're still a very young elder. You are a very youthful elder. It really put me in touch with the the potential power of you to serve, and I don't, I don't know if there are many people who can do what you did that day. I mean, that was, that seemed unique, especially in this environment. I mean, in this, and, and we, you talked about Inkwell Beach, which was a, an African-American beach in Southern California. Correct. We had black beaches here. That is correct. As did many places, especially along in segregated states, but really all over the country where it was de facto segregation, if not legal segregation. And those black beaches were, were crucial to African-Americans' relationship to the water and just ability to decompress and reach this healing that you have so eloquently described. And it was systematically and frequently violently removed. That access was removed. Very much so. Mostly by white real estate developers yes. and their allies who wanted that land for themselves. That would be correct. Freeman Beach. Yes. Yes, is uh, the name of the local beach, which was owned by the Freeman family, along with a lot of inland acreage Correct. as well. And we'll link to this story and, and some podcast interviews about it. There's a wonderful book called This Land Was Ours that you turned me on to, and there are a couple of podcast interviews with, with Dr. Carl, their author. But basically, the disproportionate application of laws, one reading for, for the Freemans and another reading of the law for Correct. the white families, and the, the Army Corps of Engineer decisions to save white recreational fishing grounds after white fishermen complained and instead root this cut, which is now called Snow's Cut, in a way that the environmental impact was all on the Freeman property. That is correct. And that kind of environmental racism has happened throughout our country's history. The environmental movement, writ large, is dominated by white people who have worked to save their own playgrounds much as those white recreational fishermen did. And in the act of saving quote unquote special places, in a lot of ways, and I'm not a historian, but a lot of ways in my opinion, white environmentalists have at best ignored the disproportional impact yeah. of places that are very special to the people who live in them right. and love them. 
and whose babies play in the dirt of them and the water of them. (laughs) And it really feels like post Breonna Taylor, post George Floyd, we have a moment in which leadership of these mainline environmental organizations Mm. is open in a way that they haven't been before. I agree. I hope that remains true. You have what I think is just a tremendously beautiful vision. Would you please talk about your vision? Well, my vision for uh, Inkwell and Black Girls Surf locally, I would like a safe space here in Wilmington, North Carolina, more specifically Carolina Beach, that would be available for the youth to come and acquire mentorship, uh, coaching, and education in a space to be much, like I said, a release and a safe space gets their own. Within reach to the ocean, most of these kids that I plan to work with and work with now are far from the beach and they live within the city's reach of the ocean. Yeah, we're talking 10 miles, which, you know, for most of us who have cars and trucks is nothing, but these kids have neither. Correct. And the buses where we live in Wilmington, North Carolina, there was at one point a streetcar line Mm. that ran from downtown to Wrightsville Beach. That's why the streetcar was put in. The streetcar was taken out with many other streetcars in the 20th century. The bus service, the public bus service, does pick up in downtown Wilmington, but Wrightsville Beach at this point will not allow the buses to drop off in the town of Wrightsville Beach. This to me is a problem. And that, I hope, at some point we can address. Right. You and I have been talking about working with an organization called Surf Rider that is very focused on access right. to beaches. But you're talking about the next level. Correct. In my vision, I would describe it as a surf STEM program with a little bit of art in- included. Surf STEAM. <laughs> there we go. That's to summarize how I would describe my vision for Inkwell Surf and Black Girl Surf to acquire a plot of land and space where we can make those dreams come true. To have that opportunity to say, this space, which at one time belonged to the African-American community, is now attainable through, through these kids. And it's a remarkable dream to think about. And hopefully, with the community's help, and surf rider and a few other organizations we can make that happen i know from my own life that you want to learn what you need to learn to survive always and once your survival is assured you want to learn what you need to learn to allow love to flourish and people fall in love with the ocean oh definitely Uh, i mean they fall in love at the ocean you got married on the beach very close to where you serve i did (laughs) yes my local break at uh carolina beach i got married right beside the pipe there and um i love it it's a very spiritual place for me every morning when i go paddle out with my friends I welcome everyone. Yeah, I mean, your service is built around that love that you have. And you've been healing, you're you're a healer. This is what you've been doing your whole adult life. And now you seem to be very clear on who you would like to help heal and how. And 
it strikes me as only good stewardship of our community resources that we, we, the collective we of southeastern North Carolina, put enough wind in your sails so that you can do the work that you seem to me predisposed and uniquely able to do. What would you say to, I mean, you're a responsible adult. You know how to maintain a disciplined existence. I could never make it in the military, so my, my hat is off to you. What would you say to other sort of stressed, harried, overwhelmed grown-ups who don't take time or make time or feel like they have time to get out into the more than human world, to get out into nature and be active? Make your best case for, for why they should try. I think we live in a detached world where we're all in intermingled and entangled into our electronics. I think uh, we've taken our attention away from nature and, you know, a lot of pressure on everyone. We're very stressed out people and I think it would be very beneficial for everybody to take a look at the ocean, smell it, listen to it. If you're brave enough, stick your toes in it. It'll surprise you. There's some people who have a lot of fears about it, but I believe in, in learning about dangerous things that you deem fearful. You can go far. With knowledge, there comes power. So a uh, healthy education about the ocean would, would definitely be a, a first step, I would suggest. Um, there's a lot of learning to do, but it comes in steps, or waves, if you will. <laughs> If you will. <laughs> uh, and you are married to a scientist, right? A, a water quality expert. So I, uh, I suspect you are all the time learning by osmosis. Correct. In addition to your intentional <laughs> study, which I know is also ongoing. So one of the driving assumptions and orienting beliefs around this Waves to Wisdom interview project is that as I entered the community of surfers, I began to realize that surfing was much more than a sport and much more than a way to just get outside. It seemed to assume the role that religion or spiritual discipline assumes in the lives, not just of you know, some devout people who go to church on you know, Sunday or, or go to synagogue on Saturday or, or pray a couple times a week, but really much more along the lines of people whose whole days are structured around this relationship to a higher power. It's, oh, it yeah. looked like surfers were, were very similar to, you know, monks who had taken orders or to devout Muslims who always know which way Correct. Mecca is and are ready five mm -hmm. times a day mm -hmm. to make sure that they have in mind what their sacred power is asking of them. And it started to feel like for some people, not for everybody, some people are just out there for the rush and they're grumpy and you know, they're not necessarily on a spiritual, what we would think of as a spiritual path. But for some people, this really helps them figure out meaning and purpose and joy and beauty and was a discipline. Do you think I'm onto something? Oh, definitely. Uh, I think we all feel the same vibration that, that's in tune with the, the waves that the ocean sends our way. Um, and it's a therapeutic 
environment that, I don't know, it kind of just draws you in and heals you without you even asking it to. <laughs> uh, I don't know, it's powerful. What can I say? It's, it's where I go and, and speak to my higher power. It's, it's where I release. It's almost an all-in-one package for me. Um, I just feel it's, it's beneficial for me to pass it along to others, as many as I can, old, young, whatever dynamic you can throw in front of me. I, I just want to help people heal through water, through waves, hopefully. <laughs> so wonderful. Hmm. Outside of that, I, I just love to crush, you know, those stereotypical ideals that you know, black people don't do this or that, fill in the blank. Mm -hmm. um, as a kid, I, I heard it a lot growing up in Georgia, and to my surprise, here we are doing everything from the moon, literally, to the bottoms of the oceans and the surface now. We surf, we swim, all the way in Africa, Rhonda's in Senegal right now, and most people would say that, you know, those things swimming and surfing they aren't attached to Africa but I would I would have to disagree I would almost say that they as a coastal people also had their own waterman story to tell absolutely and and as a matter of fact maybe one of the most famous surf movies of all time is Endless Summer plenty of people who are not surfers saw that movie correct and one of the lies really untruths i don't i don't know that bruce brown did this on purpose he was probably just ignorant but they go to the west coast of africa and and bruce brown who's narrating it says this is the first time anyone's ever seen surfing in Africa. And as a matter of fact, one of the first times that Europeans saw surfing, people riding boards recreationally in waves was Cape Coast Castle, Ghana, long before That's correct. any white Americans had decided to surf. And we know for sure that people of color were surfing in Hawaii for centuries. Right, and that very spot that you're speaking of in Gore Island, in Bruce Brown's Endless Summer, that's exactly where Rhonda is coaching uh, local kids, providing surfboards and lessons right there at Angor Island at the local break, making a change for the male and female population, providing an education and mentorship right at that very spot. But yeah. In the video, you can see Bruce Brown and the like surfing right there at the break and the local kids looking very tribal and cheering them on. You'll now discover in that same spot that we surf too. Um, there is a, a hunger and a drive in the African and African-American and each uh, diaspora to surf when we're close to the ocean. It's, it's a beautiful moment to, to lay eyes on. You know, I started surfing very young and learning about the dynamics and the history. And I'm, I'm finding out much like my own black history that there are gaps in surfing history that need to be told. And seeing it at, in Senegal right now is just beautiful. 
They're little groms with broken surfboards with the biggest smiles, taking off on waves, you know, right there outside of their door. And that's something that you wouldn't think would be tangible here in the U.S. As a matter of fact, I, I can't really think of a place where that's a thing here in the U.S. where kids can go out their, their door, maybe a few yards, what have you, from the beach and say, this is my local spot. Certainly not black kids. No. Plenty of little white kids. Oh yeah. Yeah. It's, it's the standard, I would say. Yeah, and we'll link to some, um, some really powerful histories of how we got into this situation. Yeah. Uh, and, and we actually live at the, the very northern tip of a, an historically African cultural community called the Gullah Geechee mm -hmm. down to Jacksonville, Florida, the right. southern end of it. And that was, a, you know, until this, the transition of ownership around real estate values, waterfront real estate values started, th th there were really, especially the sea islands of South Carolina and Georgia, a lot of African culture endured. And, and so many of the things that we think of as Southern, like shrimp and grits, right. are really African. Oh yeah. And I don't think a lot of people are talking about that. And I think it's time we started. Definitely. Okay, good. Is there anything else that you would like to talk about? Just like to let everybody know that as far as the surfing community goes, Inkwell Surf, Black Girl Surf, uh, and many other organizations. Um, we're out here and we're trying to make a difference in the community through surfing, through surf therapy, through competition, uh, through mentorship. And I think this new wave of change can all come together and uh, make some things happen in the surf community to make it right. Let everybody feel like they belong at the beach. Make everybody feel comfortable and I could always use a hand. You can check out Inkwell Surf and Black Girl Surf and I would very much like for everyone to donate wherever they can financially um, with a surfboard, a wetsuit, your personal time volunteering. I'm a disabled vet so uh, a helping hand would, would definitely be appreciated uh, in any aspect. and. We're looking for the whole community to come together and, you know, make a beneficial change for the surf community and hopefully let these kids know that, you know, they, they have a place on the beach just like everyone else. And hopefully I can be beneficial to that happening. Or instrumental. Or instrumental. <laughs> Thank you. Yes, we will make sure that it's easy for everybody to find you and find your cause. And, uh, and we're still at the very beginning of figuring out what that looks like, the ways to support you. So if anybody out there has expertise mm. in yes, you know, fundraising or project management or any of that sort of thing, we are wide open to your input. Yes, very much so. And I can hardly wait until the next time we surf again. Oh, thank you. Thank you so much for your time in doing this. It's been, as usual, a thorough pleasure. It's been a blessing. Thank you. And we'll see you in the lineup very soon. Oh, for sure. Okay. And hopefully there's another dolphin. Oh, my gosh. Tell the story of the dolphin. <laughs> Do. Before we go, tell that story. 
Oh, so yesterday, well, the day before yesterday, uh, we were all having a, a session out at the pipe, and right in front of you uh, pops up a beautiful, beautiful dolphin. You kind of have to make one of those split-second decisions as a surfer to decide whether it's a shark or a dolphin, and it was a dolphin. So close that you could touch it. It and was amazing. Uh, they often show up there, and it's always magical. That It blew out of its blowhole, and I got spray on me. <laughs> it was incredible. I felt like I was baptized. It was so powerful and That's wonderful. That's how we do it at the pipe. <laughs> oh, my goodness. Holy cow. Yeah, I want that to happen every time. The only way to make it happen is to show up and <laughs> Keep surf. showing up. That's. I intend to do exactly that, sir. Thank you so much for your Thank time. You. I'm so grateful. I want to end this interview with a few words about whiteness, in particular, my whiteness. When Brad talks about learning about what we deem fearful, he could be describing my own heart when it came to developing a deeper understanding of the ways whiteness has played out in my life, what I've seen, and perhaps more importantly, what I've easily ignored. Now, I hold a deep hope that these Waves to Wisdom interviews offer something substantial to all humans. But right now, I have a few words for those of us who, to loosely quote James Baldwin and Tennessee Coates, those of us who believe we are white. Unconfronted, the lie of whiteness can make the expanse of what we don't know, the territory of our own ignorance, oceanic in its scale. Dipping your toes in the water of knowledge that could reveal your own ignorance and might mean letting go of some long-held patterns and assumptions, it can seem terrifying. But once you get those toes wet and wade out into the water, a lot like surfing, you can learn to value the tumbles and tossings you get as you learn new ways of seeing. I began to relish every wipeout as I watched my ignorance evaporate bit by bit. Have I lost you? And what does whiteness have to do with surfing? Well, in its modern construction, especially in the popular imagination, ideas of whiteness are foundational to our understanding of what it means to live a coastal lifestyle. These dynamics continue to play themselves out on beaches all over the U.S. and all over the world, even as people of color reclaim or claim anew this pastime, surfing, riding boards on ocean waves, a pastime that the ancestors of Hawaiians and West Africans and other people of color invented and that some of them never let go of. So when we, when I, went to the waves and felt afraid that the locals might make me feel unwelcome because I was a stranger, or because I was a woman, because I didn't know how to surf, because I was old, or because I don't look straight, or because of a million things I was scared of, either real or imagined, one thing I never had to worry about was the next level of vitriol that I might face if my skin were darker. And I never had to contend with 400 years of systems that worked against my family building the wealth and a culture of access that allowed me to think I have the leisure and resources to get to the waves and be right, and in the process to find so much more than surfing. I never had to contend with a history that worked even more insidiously after segregation became illegal. As the poet Ross Gay says, after the Brown versus Board of Education Supreme Court decision, the US, both North and South, inaugurated an era of great racist innovation, increased entry fees at public pools where kids might learn to swim, 
increased parking fees, decreased public transportation, and a million other apparently race-blind decisions had deeply disparate racial impacts. Now, none of this learning I'm inviting you to engage in means that we, not you and not I, have to disregard or disconnect from the hurts we've suffered. It's not about that. It's about making time and space to learn our history and see who isn't here with us and why. It's about opening up to the truth of who we've been, of who we were taught to be without thinking, and in the process, opening up to who we are, regardless of our personal intentions. It's the kind of truth that has to precede not just reconciliation, but healthy relationships between humans, sure, but also our relationships with ourselves and with a more than human world. Something comes in the place of these old patterns once we start to dismantle them. What came for me was an unending gift. I'm still, after years of wonder and discovery, just seeing the outlines of, like a massive headland emerging from the fog. It's one that has a thousand promising and abundant paths for further adventures. The journey that I began alone, the path that allowed me to find Brad through solidarity and surf. Well, it's made a space for us to collaborate on a plan to work with a local organization that hadn't previously focused on barriers to access that particularly affect people of color. Brad and I drafted a proposal for a new volunteer position with the Cape Fear chapter of the Surfrider Foundation. I'll put a copy of this proposal on the website for you to use as you see fit. Our collaboration is just at its beginning, and it's already been a profound gift to me. The capacity of water to dissolve artificial barriers, not just between ourselves and others, but between our deepest, most wounded selves and the healing we need in the way we most need it. Well, that's been unparalleled in my life. So has dealing honestly with the way I was able to access that relationship with the ocean just because I decided to. Looking squarely at the ways that ease of access might be one aspect of whiteness. Well, it's led to some of the most difficult, rewarding, beautiful and instructive rides of my life. I invite you white-bodied surfers to join me on this expansive journey of connection and healing. There will be links to the YouTube channel, to Inkwell and Black Girl Surf, and to many other resources on the Waves to Wisdom website with this interview. I heartily, really, with my whole heart, encourage other surfers who believe they are white to ride some of these challenging waves too. I promise Brad is right. With knowledge comes power. Thank you for listening.